start with a volume check. Can you hear me in the back? Okay, thumbs up. Okay. It's nice to be getting rain. Um, if you live here in California, you know how much we need it. So, maybe a little closer. How's that? Better. <laughs> okay. Anyways, it's nice to uh, to be here this evening at Spirit Rock, um, sitting with you all in this retreat and feeling the meta uh, tone. And I can feel it. Me, you can feel it. But if you're going through a bit of a purification, you might not be able to feel it temporarily. But um, just to say, I can feel it in this room sitting with you all. And it is a little bit like the gentle rain outside, um, the sort of gentle metatone that we're cultivating here. And it's nice that's reflected by also receiving the rains that we need so much here in California. The uh, earth has gotten so dry, so it needs moisture. Hopefully that's what we're cultivating here is this uh, moisture inside, this uh, needed nourishment of water, sometimes on a dry heart. I'd like to talk to you tonight about this practice of loving kindness and how it creates a sanctuary inside and how from that sanctuary inside we can be a better service to the world. There's a story from the time of the Buddha, that he was sitting late into the night. And this is often when, uh, <clears throat> when the deities would come and visit him. So it's a deity story. And a deity comes to visit him and asks this question. The inner tangle and the outer tangle, this generation is entangled in a tangle. So I ask of Gotama this question, who succeeds in disentangling this tangle? So even back then there was a question about the generation <laughs> and how entangled it was in its tangles. And here was, it, I mean, you can look at it as mythology, you know, here was a deity coming down and perplexed, a deity coming down and saying, who figures this stuff out? Really, who really unties the knots that we're all so tied in? And the Buddha comes, and the deity is very, very brief, which is kind of nice. <laughs> puts, the, puts the finger right on the problem. Entangled in a tangle, who succeeds in disentangling this tangle? And the Buddha replies, when a wise person, well established in virtue, develops consciousness and understanding. Then, as a practitioner, ardent and wise, they succeed in disentangling this tangle. And the Buddha says that briefly with firm, direct, clear confidence. That's the nice thing about having a Buddha in the world is that he gets to back up what he says with being a Buddha. <laughs> <clears throat> and so here we are, untangling tangles. And sometimes we feel lost within the knots, lost within how many knots there are and how many layers to the knots there are. And sometimes a little overwhelmed 
with how many permutations of the confusions there are that we have to disentangle. But being well established in virtue, that's part of the equation. And so we talked about that in the opening night, that there are these five precepts that are practices, but that's to create beautiful ethical integrity inside. And that goes hand in hand with having a sensitive heart, but also a heart that has some strength, a heart that has some capacity to be virtuous. And you notice virtue in daily activities, but you really notice it when the heart is being challenged and has it actually created strength inside to be aligned with its values, to have this inner virtue. And developing consciousness and understanding. So consciousness is the deepening capacity to see clearly what's happening moment by moment. Otherwise we're just swirling and we're getting glimpses of things, but it lends to our confusion because we actually cannot track what's happening moment by moment. So we're developing this presence, developing this consciousness, and then from that understanding, once you actually can see what a human heart is really like inside, at its depth, and seeing it deeper and deeper, that lends to understanding. You know the nature of anger, you know the nature of fear. We've all experienced fear and anger and love and gratitude, all these beautiful qualities, but often in the flow of life. So we're experiencing it, but maybe not understanding it as deeply as we can on a retreat. And the retreat's uh, uh, sole focus is bringing mindfulness to the realm of the heart. And two things will happen on this retreat, or maybe three, <laughs> but at least two, is that we will welcome forward beautiful qualities of heart. And up, upon that welcoming, they'll show up a little more patience. We can actually realize we're being impatient. Recognize that, welcome some patience. Welcome some kindness, some gratitude, some generosity, some appreciation, some compassion, some understanding. Welcoming these beautiful qualities. They may naturally arise, and you can appreciate them and know they've arisen. And you can also recognize that maybe they're, they're absent or not as strong as you'd like. And so you welcome these qualities forward. And quite miraculously, often those qualities come forward because we recognize I should be a little more patient in this situation. I'm going to let go of this brewing irritation. It's not serving me. So this is welcoming forward beautiful qualities. And that's one part of what we're doing here. Another part is actually not being able to make a difference in our heart and our heart's unruly and our heart goes into patterns where it's struggling. And so we try to welcome these beautiful qualities forward and yet we will spend time in impatience and in irritation and anger. Um, out in ordinary life, those things are also happening. But here when they happen, we actually have a chance to understand the angry heart, the sad heart, the grieving heart, the irritated heart, the fearful heart, much more than we ever could in daily life because we're not as distracted. And this is an important part of the practice to have the courage to breathe with your own fear, to breathe with your own anger. To support that, it's helpful to have a relationship to your body. So in the walking, in the sitting, or standing, or lying down in those postures, awareness of your body, and if a challenge comes up, a very difficult mental state or emotional state, at first you might try to 
engage and, and welcome something beautiful instead of feeling anger. But at times you're going to have to breathe with these difficult states. And they're not pleasant. They're not our first choice, which is why when we do have choice, we don't do it. <laughs> when we do have choice out in the world, it's very hard to have as many distractions as we have and also have the capacity to say no, no to every single one of them so that you can explore grief or fear, whatever is this visiting emotion that's difficult to be with. And here on retreat, we get this beautiful opportunity. And hopefully, now that we're a day or two in, um, there's always going to be a little chaos because the mind is kind of a, um, it's, in a, it's quite a, a phenomena, the mind, the body, the heart. But hopefully you are developing a little bit more stamina and capacity to sit through difficult times and see that they just come in cycles. They've come in waves. And so with some faith and some steadiness and some courage, you sit through a wave of boredom, sit through a wave of irritation, sit through a wave of craving and fantasy, and think, oh my God, my practice has fallen apart. And then you wait it out a little bit. It's like, oh, that was just a wave. Now it's coming back together. The wrong view would be like, now I've got it and now it won't fall apart anymore. Thank God that's over. Now, why would I ever do that again? It's just so much better when my mind's steady. So we'll just click this box and keep it steady. <laughs> and then as you practice on, waves come. You know, when one of the great things about practicing for a long period of time is you just get used to the waves and you don't take them as any statement about you. When I was in the, um, the longest retreat I ever did was a nine-month retreat when I was um, in Burma. I practiced there for a year, but this one stretch, uh, quite long. It's like, God, will these waves ever stop? Like, when am I ever going to get past the waves? And that thought would be really troubling. That thought would actually lead me to struggle with the fact that the waves were happening. And so over time, it's just like, yep, Today is the day where we're going up. Today is the day where we're going down. Today's kind of a boring day. Oh, today's got a lot of breakthrough. Whenever I'd have breakthrough days, I'd always say like, ah, I did it. I finally did it. And I was like, oh, I know that thought. <laughs> I, yes, that, that's my breakthrough day thought. Like, ah, finally, I broke through. I would never go back. A child could do this. It's so simple. Just don't cling. Got it. <laughs> Only to find, there I was again. So <clears throat> beautiful states come, troubling states come, and we go through these waves. And then as we've mentioned a few times, and Spring talked a lot about, because we're not distracting ourselves, we're actually going to go through difficult times that we would otherwise distract ourselves. And this practice will stir them up. And so uh, not only are there waves, because the human heart has these waves in it, but the very practice we're doing is going to purify it's going to bring up stuff that we have packed away, hoping we don't have to deal with it, but it comes up. I was doing a, um, a three-month loving-kindness uh, retreat once, and I spent almost the entire three months loathing humanity. <laughs> and that's how strong I am, that I could be that unsuccessful for that long and keep doing it <laughs> for one more day. But I kept going to my teachers like, ah, there's so much loathing going on. They're like, oh good, you're purifying. I was like, if you say so, <laughs> if you say so. But I had to sit when everybody was walking and as soon as people started coming to the room, 
I would just get so irritated. It was like, oh, there's the sniffler, and there's the shuffler, and there's the heavy breather, and there's, uh, I got to get out of here. So that was my uh, loving kindness practice. <laughs> and then trying not to hate myself for it. And <clears throat> the thing that I didn't know at the time, and my teachers did, was that that was actually purifying my heart. And I've gained so much beauty since then. I did not know that was happening on a retreat. So another thing we'd like to say is uh, be kind to yourself and not evaluate so much and have a little more faith to just flow with the retreat. And the more you can do that, it's, it's, um, the evaluations are usually incorrect um, and they're painful. If you think you're winning, you're about to lose. If you think you're losing, you identify with it. You, st- you know, strive for winning again. So anyways, uh, the waves come and go. And it's about having the patience and the perspective to let the heart open and close and learn about all aspects of heart. We want to be just as oriented when the heart is tired, when the heart is closed, when the heart is open, when it's expansive. It's one of the foundations of mindfulness is the courage not to intervene and just let the heart be and no anger and no fear, no grief. Know them from the inside of the experience. And there is another side to mindfulness practice where we do intervene. So you'll hear these two messages and you'll have to practice on both sides of these equations. At times courageously seeing if you can call up loving kindness one more time when you're not feeling it. And at times where you settle in, like breathe with this dullness, breathe with this shutdown experience, breathe with your irritation. That's what you're going to do anyhow, but I'm just sort of outlining it. There's sort of no escaping it, so you're going to do it. <laughs> but at least I'm kind of making it more explicit. When um, Spring first taught the nuts and bolts of the practice, we gave out a few handouts, and one of them was um, the Buddha's words on loving kindness. It's one of the more famous discourses of the entire teachings of the Buddha. And you'll hear similar things repeated in this that are repeated in that shorter stanza when the Buddha was talking to the deity. The Buddha is talking to probably a group of practitioners here and says, this is, this is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness. So not just one who happens to be good, but one who actually has skills in being good in one who knows the path of peace. So when you know the path of peace, you know how to head. Let them be able and upright, having that inner dignity, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, content and easily satisfied unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways. I often wondered about what that line meant and I can see in this modern age how burdened with duties we are and then how scattered our attention, even if we're well-intended. It's good not to be overly committed. I have to, I have to guard that in myself. And I know others do. Peaceful and calm and wise and skillful not proud and demanding in nature. 
Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. Wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. So just in that first part of that discourse, and it goes on from there, but that first part, there's so many beautiful pointers. And so that's chanted uh, in almost every monastery. The young uh, nuns and monks will learn this at a very young age. They'll chant it. Um, they'll study it. And then you have these lines kind of echoing through your life, little pointers, about being easily contented, developing that inside yourself, humble, straightforward, gentle in speech, not proud or demanding in nature. As our hearts purify, they become tender, they become stable. And many of these attributes grow out of that. Many beautiful qualities of, hu of being human grow as our heart stabilizes, purifies, becomes more beautiful internally, and then how we relate to the world. And so as our heart does this purification process, it does become a sanctuary inside. When I first started this practice, I was probably told something like that 20 years ago, 25 years ago. And I probably said, you've never looked at my heart. I hear you promising that. And maybe that's true for you, but this heart inside is quite troubled. At times it's free, at times it's kind, but at times it's so petty and we're scared and it's so, it's collecting its armor and its cautions and wants to be free. And so coming to my first retreat, I probably would have deeply wanted something like that and heard words like, my heart could be a sanctuary and completely disbelieved it. This felt like that was true for some Californian <laughs> that they could talk like that. I grew up on the East Coast. So when people talked about your heart being a sanctuary, I was like, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Next, there'll be poems about geese. I know it's coming. <laughs> but that has happened. That has happened. It took me a while to have the courage to do a loving-kindness retreat. It was actually harder for me than the mindfulness of Pasana retreats. I liked them for the, the clarity, wisdom side. But there was so much, uh, so much pain in my heart that to actually do even an hour of loving-kindness practice was to slam into the wall of numbness or slam into all the judgments and insecurities. It took me years to find another being I could do loving kindness for without seeing their flaws and immediately struggling with how flawed they were. The first being I could really actually do loving kindness for was a dog that I had in college. And that dog was really loyal. That dog was really kind. It's also a very odd dog. It would, when I got excited, it would sneeze. So every time I came home, this dog would go crazy and just start sneezing and sneezing. It also had a bit of an underbite. So it would get excited and sneeze and it would look like it was growling. <laughs> but that's how I knew it was happy. And uh, it was a very popular dog on college campus because it was such a weird dog. But that dog uh, was really loyal to me. And so I've learned how to love humans by starting with dogs. And then I see the dog in you and if I can see the dog in you, then I can love you. I can get the foot in the door and I can, I can forgive your human nature. <laughs> I'm more likely to, to have a chance of forgiving your complex human nature. But first I have to see the dog in you. 
It's almost like seeing the good in someone, just so you can see their dog-like nature. To me, that's like Buddha nature, if you have dog nature. <clears throat> Before I came to, so there, that's, that's happened. My, my heart is my greatest sanctuary, and, and second to that are my dearest friends. When my heart is troubled, and I can't quite find sanctuary in my own heart, then uh, it's the gift of having really beautiful friends who have done their work to make their hearts a sanctuary for themselves and for others. And so you're doing it for yourself, that you have your heart be a sanctuary, and then all those around you will feel your heart as a sanctuary and will come to trust you for counsel. They'll trust you when times are rough. They'll trust, they'll trust you to share their joys with because they'll know you'll really get it. You really understand what their happiness means. And that leads into service. This heart becomes a sanctuary. And from there, we care about the world. We feel the world. And by feeling the world at that level, at that tenderness, of course we want to respond. It's part of the training here and part of the setup of the retreat that we are not uh, in great acts of service, that when someone's crying we don't go over to them. That's part of the, the conditions of these retreats. But it's not a choice for life. As soon as the retreat's over, we want you to engage in your communities. We want you to care about the world. All the, all the joys and all the passions and aspirations that come out of a beautiful heart, we want you to engage in them and to explore them you know, with, with wisdom and discretion. But here in retreat, we're trying to unplug from being overcommitted. We're trying to unplug from being often so scattered and let the heart collect again. Let it be, feel whole again. Let it feel rested from being overcommitted. Before I came to do my first retreat, which was really my first uh, real encounter with Buddhism, I'd already um, spent many years in pretty committed activism and service. So when I, was, I went to school in Portland, and some of you might remember there was a clinic that was blown up, or there was a bomb set off in the clinic. It was a women's clinic. And so a, a bunch of us immediately got trained in... Uh, in nonviolence, so we could protect women going in and out of that clinic. And we, we did that, skipped classes, and um, tried to put our, ourselves in front of the people who, there was such a, there was so much tension. We didn't know if there was another bomb that was going to go off, so we got trained in that. Also did a lot of um, anti-nuclear test site work. So th there, there have been over a thousand nuclear bombs that have gone off in Nevada. And it's um, just north of Las Vegas. <clears throat> it's on Shoshone land. And so the Shoshone were resisting the nuclear testing. And they were um, partnered with uh, peace activists and with environmental activists. And there were many, many protests there trying to stop the bombs from going off. And that's when I first uh, came in contact with some of the beautiful Native American elders um, in our country. <clears throat> this one man named Corbin um, was one of the leaders down there, and he was the leader of the Shoshone in that area. Um, it, it had a very beautiful presence, such a beautiful, beautiful heart. And we'd lead ceremonies of, of prayers and protection for the earth and for the 
people protesting and for his people and for all the visitors. You know, he, he, would, he had so many beautiful things he said. There's this one, Mother Earth provides us with food, provides us with air, provides us with water. We the people are going to have to put out thoughts together to save our planet. We've only got one water, one air, one Mother Earth. And he would <clears throat> fly over to uh, Kazakhstan where the Soviet Union was doing their testing. And there was a partnership between these two native communities that were enduring the, the na- all the nuclear testing that the two countries were doing in their arms race. Tried to build networks of indigenous people fighting. And that's been going on uh, probably for 500 years, if not longer. And now there's even current examples of that. One that's famous is, you know, you've all heard about Standing Rock um, and protecting the water there. But it's been going on in, in many uh, native communities trying to protect the land. I was part of a walk um, that walked from New York City out to the Nevada nuclear test site. And I joined them for the Kansas portion. So I've walked across Kansas. <clears throat> I recommend it. <laughs> I, there, there are two ways to see Kansas. Two ways I like to see Kansas. One is at highway speeds. Um, and one is at three miles an hour. Because you really appreciate that tree. <laughs> that one tree in Kansas. <laughs> but we would visit uh, native communities along the way and, um, and help them with whatever their, their land issues were, um, their sovereignty issues were, and they would offer us uh, blessings and teachings along the way. And so long before I came in contact with Buddhism, there was uh, already a commitment that we had to serve the world. We had to participate. Um, but what I didn't understand is how my heart would be as beautiful as it needed to be to do the work I wanted to do. What I saw in Corbin, uh, such a beautiful, I mean, his eyes were so steady and clear every day, his heart so pure. If you've heard uh, me talk about this story before, um, at one particular protest, I camped near this group of elder Quaker women, and the joy, the songs, the camaraderie, seeing them get arrested, uh, seeing them love the guards who are arresting them, seeing the guards love them and love arresting them. And, <laughs> and the whole, the joy, like there was the joyfulness, the true authentic, there was no violence in that moment. And the guards had learned to love them and they had learned to love the guards and they really learned who the guards were. And they'd ended that war in that little microcosm but they both stood for the work they had to do for their responsibilities. And then when I would get arrested, I would try to follow their lead, but I would be so angry or fearful or doubting. And it wasn't until the first uh, meditation retreat that I saw, this is the training. This is the way. This is a path to peace. I can actually go into my heart and sort it out. I can go in and really understand the roots of my fear, the roots of my insecurities. I can be in there and make a difference, you know, bit by bit. But that actually was the training. Actually being able to be in uh, uh, anti-racist training. So I was in college, for example, and then still be very frustrated that I would go to training after training and still find I just couldn't 
make a difference in this mind. I had all these convictions, but still had to fight this mind. And then to be on a loving kindness retreat or an insight meditation retreat and start to really understand that I didn't create these thoughts, but I might be encouraging them. And that was important to really understand that the thoughts we're having, the patterns we're having, might have started long before we became conscious, but are we strengthening them? Are we feeding them? Are we nourishing them? And can we strengthen and nourish, nourish other qualities? And to see that this practice was the transformational work, these retreats, this tradition, was going to be the work that would really convert the heart so that it could serve the way that it wanted to. And then later on, uh, I <clears throat> did a lot of service and activism in sort of scattered ways and decided that I wanted actually to be more dedicated on a particular project and have more impact. So I began working with homeless teenagers in Seattle and going on meditation retreats. And that's when I really understood something that I hadn't seen before, the power of what we're doing here. You know, I'm not sure, you, you will know more about what this retreat really has meant the weeks after you go home than you could ever really evaluate on the retreat. But it was like to be on a retreat and feel like I wasn't pretty, particularly good at meditation, but I was putting in my time and having the ups and downs and whatnot. But then going and working in a crisis shelter, usually like a day after the retreat, I didn't know to put a day between the retreat and uh, going back to work. I'd walk in there and I'd be so conscious and so present. I'd like, I'm not going to survive this. It's intense in there. But I would walk in and I could actually look people in the eye and I could talk to people on the phone. And people started, people started giving me this feedback. There's like something about you after those retreats. Like, I trust you on some level. There's something settled about you. There's something quiet about you. It really feels like you look me in the eye. And I began to see that that was part of what happened on these retreats. Whether I thought they were good retreats or bad retreats, they created a sanctuary inside and they allowed me to do the type of service I really had longed to do afterwards. No matter what had happened on the retreat, afterwards my practice became sanctuary for others. And that taught me that these retreats are not um, selfish. These retreats are not they, they play a very important role in how we're going to take care of the planet. We have to have experiences like this. Our hearts cannot stay on and engaged forever. The problems are quite big. They need long-term solutions. And to stay healthy and fresh in that work, we need time like this. So if that doubt has crossed your mind about whether you should be here or whether you should be out in the world doing something about the the state of the world. We need this time. We need this time to regroup. We need this time to strengthen our convictions. We need this time to clean out, to take out some of the old barbs and wounds. We need to, to touch our hearts, touch our bodies, and then walk back out into the world with that little more sanctuary, little more purity of service, and then watch that play out over time. And then you need a place to come back to. You need a place to regroup. You need a place you know you can regroup when you've been overextended, when you've been rattled, when you've been tossed about by well, how intense the world gets at times. 
And the world is going through something right now. I think we can all see it. And the world has always been going through something. And at times it gets very vivid with the climate change, with the political uh, um, ripples that are happening around the world, with the strife that seems to be really strong right now. There's something happening and it's larger than, than we can have perspective on. We can start to see glimpses. There's something big happening. And we all will need to participate in small ways and large ways. But definitely having a place like Silent Retreat to come to, get clear inside, regroup, and then reemerge into the world however you want to, however you want to be engaged. This is absolutely Christ, uh, cr crucial, absolutely crucial to have a time like this. And we're really blessed to be in a circle like this and have these days to be practicing. It might not feel that way when you're struggling with boredom or knee pain or in those, uh, in those times when the practice is hard. And that's actually, when the practice is hard, that's actually when it's going into new territory. Hard retreats have often been the ones that have transformed me the most. The ones where I've felt like, God, ah, something's not clicking. And I've had beautiful validating retreats and they've, been, they've played their role too. But having sat through and had the conviction to sit one more time, to say the phrases one more time, to see if I can say the phrases with sincerity one more time, one at a time, a sincere phrase, a sincere simple wish for my own welfare, for the welfare of another, for my own peace, for the peace of another, for the happiness, the health, the well-being, steadiness, when that's easy, it's beautiful. When those windows open up, it's very validating. And in some ways, those windows do open up more and more. I, I can say that over time. You do get more access to that. But when you can actually say that, when the heart, when the heart is turned a little hard, when, when it's a little dull, when there's resentment, when there's irritation, and still in those times, you reach for a phrase you reach for a sincere wish for somebody else's welfare or for your own welfare. You're down in the middle of your irritation. You're down in the middle of your doubt. You're down in the middle of your sleepiness. And rather than kind of collapse under that experience, some noble, strong part of you, even there, wants to point towards kindness. God, I wish I could like give you a hug right there. But that's a beautiful moment when it's gotten hard and you're still gently trying to be kind. Because that's what we need out in the world. When validating days when the, the mind is clear, we know what to do because the mind's clear, or at least we have a better chance of knowing what to do. But orienting towards kindness when we're tired, orienting towards kindness when we've gotten irritated, when there's fear, orienting towards kindness when there's doubt, confusion, a lot of insecurity, when those have happened and we still point towards kindness, that's heroic. There was some quote I had uh, that was important for me for a little while. It says, sometimes the greatest courage is not large heroic moments, but just a silent whisper in your own ear, you can do this. 
And I think we're at a time. I think we're at a time. I think we're, we're at a planetary time and a passage point where we're going to have to be steady and we're, we're guiding our, our own hearts back to kindness and wisdom and perspective. And it's the very work you're doing here. Anytime you're finding a challenge and you're guiding yourself towards kindness, towards friendliness, towards loyalty, this loving kindness, this metta, or you're breathing in the middle of your own fear, your own outrage, your own irritations, and you can't quite find the kindness, but you're still here, you're still breathing in the middle of it, getting to know it a little better. Both of those are profound, and so it's, that's the very mechanism of the transformation of this form of practice. The, be, the ability to breathe with what's difficult and the ability to welcome forward beautiful qualities. There was a time, I think it was maybe my first loving kindness retreat, kind of like this one. And a couple of days in, I got a note that my brother had gone to the hospital and I, so I called my family and it was, it was quite critical. And so I had this sense of like, wow, should I leave the retreat? I'm halfway through it. I feel a little bit you know, sensitive and I don't know if I could go home. And so I talked to the teachers and they said, yes, of course you could go home if you wanted to. But without forcing you to stay, would it be better to take a day or two more here and then bring that to your brother versus being one more person in crisis mode, hovering around him. And knowing my family, I was like, yeah, he's got plenty, plenty of crisis around him, plenty of people, and I'd be one more person adding to the crisis. And I could feel the crisis in my own heart. And so I sat there for two more days to see out the retreat. And I still wasn't sure I had made the right choice. But loving him, caring for him, caring for my family, building the capacity to understand what had happened to him, taking that time and then going home. And I wasn't part of the immediate care for him, but because I had taken that time to orient towards him falling ill and then my family's stress around that, I played a very crucial role in taking care of him and my family and giving them some ground, giving them some uh, backup because I'd actually stabilized my heart before I had joined in on, on his care. So that's not necessarily the choice for everybody at, at all times, but it was an interesting choice to take a few more days on retreat and then join in a problem that had happened, that had surfaced in my family and to have a little bit more time to stabilize my heart before I made that choice, before I walked into that uh, intensive family dynamic. And that's a small example, and we also now have a large example Again, many things happening in your personally, in your families, in your communities, now nationally and globally. Take a few more days to strengthen this heart, to steady it, to look into it, to see what's really beautiful, to see what parts have a contraction around them. Getting into the heart, strengthening it, sorting it out, and then engaging the world, making that sanctuary inside so that you can be of service, really impactful service when we go. 
I didn't really understand the Buddhist world when I first joined it because um, I was so I was still in my activist identity, and I'd gone on my first silent retreat. And then people who were deep into silent retreat had felt a little bit unplugged from the world to me. I was like, oh, this is a little bit of a shadow side of people who only like the silent retreat. But it was beautiful. And then I went to my activist friends. I was like, you should try this. And I was like, you did what? You were sat in silence? Like, that's so self-indulgent. I was like, okay, you guys got a little shadow side too. <laughs> You're a little over, you know, like another pot of coffee and, you know, eight more hours of hard work and then another pot of coffee. Like, wow, you guys could regroup a little bit. You're kind of overextended. And so I walked between these two worlds. And they, be and they work so beautifully together. Uh, so I know, this is, I know this is going to happen for each one of you. And hopefully there are coordinated ways that we can respond to what's happening in the world now. <clears throat> just say uh, just a few more things that I think are helpful orientations to this practice. We really, <clears throat> we have to grow our capacity to be for loving kindness and the wisdom of our tradition to be accessible in really difficult times. It's something we have to grow. And so after uh, Mark led the compassion practice, people's hands went up and went right to some very difficult uh, parts, very, a lot of pain in the world. And <clears throat> we're not quite there yet where you could take something as tender as the practices we're doing and apply them to the, the size of the pain in the world. We're going there. We can grow that capacity. But you really want to start where you can get the heart open, flowing, and trusting, and then expand that and learn about that expansion so we go through these categories, and there's a wisdom to going through these categories. That's why I do dogs before I do people. <laughs> it's, it's really skillful. I get to people much quicker if I start with dogs. If I start with people, it takes me a long time to get my heart capable of people. But if I start with dogs, I get like that compass heading. It's like, yeah, all dogs are good, except the ones who have been mistreated. I know that to be true. That's true for people too. But if I start with people, I might go right into my, yeah, or, I don't know about that one. Like, then that, it's like a belief that difficult people have had hard times in their past. I can't get there emotionally, but I get there with dogs quickly. And then I transfer that over to people. There was, uh, <clears throat> so anyways, there's a, we have to grow our capacities, grow our capacities to bring this orientation, a loving kindness, of compassion, of empathetic joy, of this beautiful heart quality of equanimity. So that it is a strength we can bring into real world situations with all the powers and complexities that are going on there. So please uh, follow that advice. Uh, the heart wants to go quickly to where there's a lot of pain. And we need, really need to build our capacity to do that day by day as we're, do, as we're working here. There was a time that <clears throat> I had a, um, one of my first really uh, important uh, romantic relationships. And when it ended, I went to a, a tremendous amount of grief around it. And the grief lasted for about 
three months. And I really felt like I was underwater. I, I had never grieved like that before. Um, my heart had never hurt on that level. Uh, been that submerged in grief. And it felt like I was underwater. I felt like the rest of the world was kind of happening around me and it, I heard people talking, but they sounded like they were wah, wah, wah. And I couldn't really track other people that well because the grief was so strong. But I got glimpses within it and I learned a lot about grief, but it was still more powerful than I could be conscious of at the time. But that getting the glimpses in that grief has helped me so much in other times of grief. It was the first time I really uh, began to understand how grief worked, but it took, by be- it took being submerged in it to take it seriously. And then from that, I've been able to handle grief uh, consciously. So last uh, January, uh, my 23-year-old niece uh, died suddenly. And it came out of the blue, uh, tremendous loss for my family. Um, and once again, I felt this incredible wave of grief come over. But this time I was conscious in it, and I still felt a little disconnected from the world. But I was so grateful for that earlier grief that I felt I had not been that conscious in, because it started, it taught me something about grieving, grieving consciously. And I'm so grateful that I was able to grieve consciously for my niece, because she deserves that. It wasn't like I was sitting happy eating chocolate. It wasn't that. There was, the the pain was immense, but I didn't collapse under it. And that size of pain felt appropriate for the loss. But earlier, that amount of pain would would have collapsed my consciousness. I would have been in grief and despair. I would have been desperate to get out of it. I didn't need to get out of that grief with my niece. It felt sac- It felt sacred to grieve on that level. And it took six months. It took six months of being very submerged in understanding that she was gone and what that meant. And then my, my heart kind of popped up to the surface again. And now I miss her tremendously. I really do. And I love her. And I still talk to her in my mind. And I still get these waves like, ah, I'm not really going to hear her laughter one more time. I'm not really going to get to uh, play Parcheesi with her. That was our game, <laughs> if you know that game. It's like, it's like sorry. But I, I, I still have access to her. And my, some people of my family lost access to her because the grief hurt their heart. And so they have a hard time even remembering her. And so I didn't know at the time, but that first amount of grief and loss, which was really painful, and if someone had given me a ticket out, I would have taken it. Because I couldn't get out of it, it taught me about grief. And now I know how to grieve consciously. And I think the world sometimes needs conscious grief. It needs some witnessing and feeling the size of the loss. And so my heart is now my own sanctuary as I go through the gains and losses in my life. As my parents are growing older, I can already feel the sadness of knowing they won't be here one day. And I want to be conscious there. I want to, it's, it's like consciously pre-missing them. It, it's, it's right, it's appropriate, it's understanding that they're temporary and, and getting that. I've had to grow that capacity. So I, I want you all to, to um, 
grow your capacity. Every time you're visiting a hard moment on the retreat, it's actually a gift. You're growing your capacity. However that difficulty is showing up, it's giving you a chance to grow your heart, to be possibly conscious in that time of fatigue or fear or sorrow or anger or impatience. And so be steady there. Honor those times of the retreat. They could be giving you more than you realize. And from the passing of my niece and the way that that's affected my heart, my heart is now a sanctuary for other people who've gone through loss. I already have uh, friends and students who if they'd come to me before my niece had passed, I would have been compassionate, but not really in the same boat with them. And now I can be, I can be in that with people. I know the beauty and the importance of grief. And this grief is just one example, just one challenge. But so is anger. And I now know the importance of anger. I know the distortion of anger. And I know the importance of anger because I've been in my own anger. I know the importance, I know the distortion, the fear. And because I've been in it. So hopefully as these challenges come to you, um, more quickly, you might recognize that they're actually um, a training. They're actually a time of training and they actually have a gift within them. And they're not just hard parts of the retreat and you're waiting for something more validating or more beautiful. Those actual times might be part of the really precious gifts that are happening. And that's true. That's been true for my practice. In hindsight, hard times have had these incredible gifts within them. So at the end, <laughs> at the end of this uh, three-month <clears throat> loving-kindness retreat, that I was struggling with people so much. <clears throat> I, I had one big wave at the end. And uh, I was sitting, writing for the Dharma talk, and this particular teacher was getting ready to give the talk, and I saw who it was, and I was like, oh my God, I, I can't endure another one of their talks. They trigger me so much. And so it was December in Massachusetts, mid-December. And so I went outside, but to go outside, I had to put on so many layers of clothing because it was freezing out and it snowed. And so I, I walked out into this par- parking lot that was covered in ice. I was doing walking meditation back and forth. I was like, well, at least I'm not in the Dharma hall. At least I'm not. But it was one of those Dharma, Dharma talks where everybody was laughing and like I, Ah, they're having such a good time in there. <laughs> I was like, ah, this, I'm such a meta-failure. It's like the coldest night in December in Massachusetts. I'm crunching on the ice. I'm alone. I'm covered in all this, you know, winter. There's no leaves on the trees anymore. It's dark out here. It's dark. It's cold. This is where I am. <laughs> and they're in this warm, lit room, and they're laughing, and she's hitting every joke, and like, ah, oh, they're bonded, and it's a whole community, and like, how could this happen? How could I be a, you know, two and a half months into a loving kindness retreat and be alone crunching on this ice and cold and they're in there and I'm the one who doesn't belong, but God damn it, I've been working on my heart for two and a half months. <laughs> and then this like rage came over. It's like, what have I been practicing? What have they been teaching me? <laughs> like, what's going on here, people? I was crunching and getting furious. And I was like, 
I'm so angry at you all. I'm so angry at you all. And this, and then, you know, like little part of me was watching. I was like, oh my God, like the two and a half months in and you were so angry and lonely and lost. I'm like, and I didn't know it. It was a huge wave of purification that was coming through and I couldn't get out and I couldn't leave and I was just suffering tremendously. But the wave broke. The wave broke. There was this crescendo moment where I was just like in my anger and lostness and it hit a peak and then it broke open and I felt humble. I felt quiet. I felt exhausted by all the resentment. <laughs> I was walking and people were laughing and I was like, well, at least you guys are having fun and may you all be well, may you be happy and may you be warm. And, and like, ah, oh, these poor teachers, I bet every now and then some student kicks in the door. I've been practicing loving kindness <laughs> for two and a half months and why have you been teaching me? It's like, okay, you're purifying. It's like, Rah! And luckily the wave peaked before I actually found any one of them. <laughs> and I thought, wow, these poor teachers, you know, they're really, they're giving it their all every day. And they're working with students and we all have these crazy minds. And without really even trying that hard, all this gratitude came. And I thought, I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep going. There's something to this. I'm going to see where this heads. And a lot of easy gratitude came and luckily when I did see them next, I could tell them the story. I could see the relief on their, <laughs> on their face that I actually had learned what I needed to learn without them having to defend themselves from my, my madness. But <clears throat> that wave came and it cleared out so much old pattern of resentment or betrayal or suspicion. And that stuff had to come out. But it had to come out the front door. You know, it came in through my eyes, it came in through my ears, it brewed in my heart, and that's the way it had to go back out through my heart. And it came out, but what was left over was spacious and tender and patient and appreciative and uh, definitely humbled because of it. And those are all really beautiful qualities. So whether you're, you're having, a, you know, your whole retreat is a struggling one, I probably doubt it, but if it's got a lot of struggle on it or you're having a particularly gentle, validating retreat, it's all beautiful. It's all good. It all plays the role it needs to play in your practice of clearing out your heart, purifying your heart. And that does create this sanctuary inside. And something I would like you to know when it's happening if you're actually in a time where you can say sincere phrases, I want you to taste your own heart in that moment as a sanctuary. Human hearts don't necessarily love easily. Adult human hearts don't necessarily love easily. So if you find that you're actually starting to experience patience or kindness in your own heart, take note of that. That's a beautiful human heart. That's a moment. That's your own sanctuary inside. And that is what tends to grow through these practices, through the ups and downs of practices. And as that sanctuary grows and brightens and warms, it becomes the place where we turn to the world and we serve the world. It's where we want to participate in the world and service pours out of us. And it's where people and animals and the planet itself will turn towards us looking for that refuge. And your own heart becomes a refuge to you, but it becomes a refuge to others. And we definitely at a time where we need clear refuges in ourselves and in others. And luckily that's what we're practicing here.
Let's take a few moments to sit together and let the words settle. And if your heart is in a moment where it's feeling calm or open, where you feel tender, any beautiful qualities, notice your heart is a sanctuary. And if your heart is going through something difficult, a doubt, an irritation, an anger, a fear, Have the courage to breathe with that, to be tender towards yourself. And learn what it's like to be in that heart space. That's also a part of your awakening. We have a half hour for walking meditation and then the last sitting will also be a time sitting together with uh, some chanting. So enjoy your evening one way or the other, however it is for you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.